Where are these missing pages? This map, we must have these pages back. This one's got pages missing. Why are the pages missing? Like a book with missing pages. There are many different themes that come up when thinking about America as a whole, about America as a country throughout history, how it's changed, how it's developed. One that I feel remains constant throughout American history and kind of the mythos of America itself is the idea of a melting pot, that America brings together cultures from around the world to this one land and somehow, some way, we're able to live in relative harmony. Now, obviously, this is not perfect, and I would never say that it is. There's a constant struggle to make sure that we do become a more perfect union. And we'll get to where those words come from, obviously, later. But the first was the Puritan immigration from East Anglia, in England, in the 1630s. And we'll talk about different immigration periods as we go forward, but there's another side of this, not necessarily just the people where they come from, but who they are, how they are, and the values that they bring with them. And we talked a little bit about how the Puritans were well-educated, obviously extremely religious, among other things. But there's a group of people that kind of remains throughout all of these different groups of people that will come and will make a large impact in the story. And that's the archetype of the rebel, the dissident, the agitator, the revolutionary. Last episode, I believe I said, we will see throughout history how the ideas of the Mayflower Compact, as well as the ideas of John Winthrop in his sermon, a model of Christian charity, his city upon the hill sermon, how these ideas of community and selflessness and civil government by and for the people will remain throughout American history and influence the future leaders of America. So I'm going to start another similar type of thread that we will follow throughout American history here in this episode, about the many dissidents in the early colonial story. Now, we know where this season will lead, as I started it off with the end point of the King Philip's War and Bacon's Rebellion. And just in the word rebellion, we know that this thread will be pulled again by the end of the season. But this episode starts not with Nathaniel Bacon, but with two Puritans that arrive among those first in the Great Migration in the 1630s, Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson. These are not the only two names that will be involved in the story, but they are the large ones, and the APUS history notes do introduce them by stating that Roger Williams had three major disagreements with the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He stated that they shouldn't have taken the Indian land, 
He was for separation of church and state, and he wanted to separate from the Anglican church altogether. And for these disagreements, he was eventually banished. And I had the question, do you believe that William should have been banished? Why or why not? I said, no, everyone has the right to an opinion. Moving on, after being banished, Roger Williams founded the Rhode Island colony. And the question is asked, what were two major characteristics of this colony? And they were freedom of religion and separation of church and state. Also banished from Massachusetts Bay was Anne Hutchinson. What major accusation did Anne Hutchinson make about most of the ministers in the Massachusetts Bay colony? She said the ministers had not been saved and lacked authority over saints such as herself. And this brings up the ideas of covenant of grace and covenant of works. The covenant of grace states that you are saved by God's grace alone, and the covenant of works states that you are saved by doing good deeds. And Hutchinson accused the Puritan ministers of preaching a covenant of works. The notes then state that Hutchinson and her followers were called antinomians. They believed that the truly saved do not need to obey man's laws nor God's laws. Continuing on, the question is asked, what is the major thing that Anne Hutchinson did during her trial that eventually caused her to be banished? And I write, she claimed to have a direct communication to God. The question is then asked, pretend you are a Puritan living in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1637. Do you believe Anne Hutchinson should have been banished? Why or why not? And I said, yes, she was going against everything that the Puritans believed in. Now that is as far as the notes go with these two dissidents, and it doesn't really mention any dissidents other than these two until we get to Bacon's Rebellion. So there's a lot of detail that needs to be filled in here to get a better sense of who these two were, who their allies were, and others that were even more extreme and more radical than these two in the early American colonies. So come with me, grab your manifestos, and let's start filling in those missing pages. I'm going to start this episode not with Roger Williams or Anne Hutchinson. There's someone I wanted to bring up again that I mentioned in a previous episode, Stephen Hopkins. Now, in 1609, Stephen Hopkins was aboard the Sea Venture, that ship that crash-landed in Bermuda. And in September of that year, several sailors began a small revolt against the governor of the ship, Thomas Gates. Now, these were the first of two different rebellions during this time on Bermuda, and the second mutiny started in January of 1610 by Stephen Hopkins. He was heard stating that there was no authority that he needed to respect in this place, and the right of every man was to be free from government. In his biography of Stephen Hopkins, called A Stranger Among Saints, Jonathan Mack quotes William Strachey, a chronicler aboard the ship and a close friend of Shakespeare's. Quote, Hopkins alleged substantial arguments, both civil and divine, that it was no breach of honesty, conscience, or religion to decline from the obedience of the governor or to refuse to go any further led by Gates's authority, since the authority ceased when the wreck was committed. 
and with it they were all then freed from the government of any man. And for a matter of conscience, it is not unknown to the meanest that we are only bound, each one, to provide for himself and his own family. End quote. For this mutiny and anarchistic belief, Hopkins was sentenced to death, as Gates could not see this challenge to his authority stand. And I believe I stated in the episode the ultimate fate of Stephen Hopkins, that he was actually not executed for this, and after a minor protest, Gates rescinded this sentence, and he would later end up in Plymouth Plantation. Now, Stephen Hopkins doesn't have any relation to Roger Williams or an Anne Hutchinson other than in the general sense that there was a growing and perhaps always there a latent rebelliousness among many people coming from England. It wasn't super strong among everybody, and it didn't have a strong backing most of the time. But for whatever reason, there were many, many people that decided to use illegal and religious arguments to try and thwart any government authority. Now, Stephen Hopkins, in that quote, is likely not actually using legal or religious arguments effectively and probably is false in his conclusions. But the same cannot be said for Roger Williams. Williams was born in England in 1603, the year that King James I ascended to the throne. He was born in a world after the Reformation and the horrors of Queen Mary and the reconciliation of Queen Elizabeth I. But in his early childhood, religious turmoil had a very large place in the public spotlight. When he was just two years old, the gunpowder plot was uncovered and the perpetrators were hung, drawn, and quartered. As a child, Williams also witnessed multiple people being burned at the stake for their crime of questioning the Church of England. From a small age, he was also surrounded with new ideas and problems to face, and when he was a teenager, Williams witnessed the beginning of the Thirty Years' War and the devastation that this conflict brought. And it was during this time that Williams was under the employ of Edward Coke. Edward Coke was a lawyer, scholar, and judge in England during the 16th and 17th century. He was instrumental in establishing the power of the court in England and codifying the common law more clearly than it was previously. He also helped write the charter for the Virginia Company, and while he was a mentor for Roger Williams, was in a heated rivalry throughout his career with Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon is most commonly understood to be the father of empiricism and the uh, writer of his famous, most famous work, Novum Organum, which challenged the ideas of Aristotle and the scholastics and called for what we now call the scientific method. He argued that Aristotle would bend the world to match his reason rather than the other way around. And this work actually led to the creation of the Royal Society in England and is still a landmark today. During his time as a philosopher, Francis Bacon also worked alongside King James I and ascended through the ranks very quickly. Now, Bacon was extremely loyal to King James, and he worked on his own philosophy originally to seek a means to the tyrannical king's ends. During this time that Bacon was working alongside the king, Thomas Hobbes was in his employ. Now, Edward Coke, on the other hand, was extremely defiant of the king and would bring forth charges against the monarchy itself. For this, Coke was imprisoned in the Tower of London. He was eventually set free, though, 
and would continue his attacks and would have one more clash with a king, King Charles, James's son. And Coke was defending the very nature of law against the tyrannical forces of the crown and was unrelenting. He challenged the House of Lords against their claim of divine authority, stating that authority must be bound by law, not God. And he also argued for due process, the writ of habeas corpus, imprisonment with cause alone, and respect for the rule of law. Now these ideals would be extremely important to Roger Williams, as we'll see. While under Coke's tutelage, he also attended the Charterhouse School in 1621 and Pembroke College in 1623. After that, Williams attended Cambridge, where he first encountered the ideas of rebellion against an unjust leader. He was hired after a graduation as a family chaplain and worked as a messenger and scribe for Sir William Masham. And while he was employed by Masham, Williams took part in the Parliament of 1629 called by King Charles I to secure more funding for war. The events of the 1629 Parliament reinforced the ideals that he had, and he would use this experience to build his legal framework for liberty and freedom and become the revolutionary figure he was known to be. Despite seeing what unjust rulers can do, Williams wished to stay in England, but the advances of William Laud made him fear for his liberty and even his life. He had seen many Puritans such as Thomas Hooker face the High Commission and flee, so he felt it was his only choice to leave. He considered fleeing to the Netherlands, like Hooker did, but the Thirty Years' War made it almost as dangerous as England itself. He decided that his only course was to follow many of his Puritan peers and sail to Massachusetts in December of 1630. Now I'm not going to rehash everything that happened here in the beginning of the colony of Massachusetts. Williams was offered a post as the church teacher to replace John Wilson at Boston Church, but he declined. He stated that he saw errors in their ways of teaching and could not reconcile their differences. Now, he was a separatist, and remember back, those of Massachusetts were not. Williams also had the view that this new government that Massachusetts had just built had no right to interfere with one's relationship with God. The government need only to reinforce the relationships between men. Now, this is not what John Winthrop wanted to hear and would keep an eye on him from the very moment that they landed. So Williams decided instead of Boston, he would, he would move to Salem, the neighboring city to Boston that they had originally landed in. But John Winthrop held sway in Salem still, despite their differences and the somewhat resentful attitude that Salem held towards Boston, and was able to withdraw the position from Williams. And so Williams decided to leave, and he headed for Plymouth. Now, Plymouth actually welcomed him with open arms. He became friends quickly with William Bradford and Edward Winslow. He quickly ingratiated himself in the church and would prophesy and lead healthy debates with many of the congregants. Despite Winthrop withdrawing his employment, Williams actually held no animus towards him. And they would actually often write letters back and forth. And while Williams was in Plymouth, he actually took it upon himself to convert many of the Indians that he met to his version of Christianity before Spain or France could convert them to Catholicism. He learned their languages and took time to forge relationships and become trade partners with many of these natives. And while living among them, Williams began to make observations and comparisons between them and the British settlers. 
and he learned much about their burning techniques and their farming techniques and their view on property ownership and usage. With this knowledge, Williams began advocating heavily for recognizing the Indian ownership of the land and creating new charters to account for this. Although he had some support, this did not go over very well with the leadership of Plymouth, and much like in Massachusetts Bay, he was forced out of Plymouth and he made his way back to Salem with several of his supporters. While acting as the teacher of the Salem Church upon his uh, rearrival to Salem, Williams was invited by Samuel Skelton to attend a meeting with the Massachusetts Bay clergy. Williams quickly overstayed his welcome, though, and was summoned to appear and face punishment for questioning the decisions of Winthrop and the council. Williams conceded and agreed to have his work burned to escape any trouble. Now, Boston, when he arrived back to Salem, was embroiled in a short internal conflict with Thomas Hooker, that man who moved to the Netherlands, now lived in Massachusetts. He requested to leave in 1634 and form his own colony. While four of the magistrates opposed this motion, two others and the new governor, Thomas Dudley, accepted it. The majority of the deputies of the surrounding towns also voted in favor of Hooker's request, and this vote created two separate voting bodies in Massachusetts at the time, the magistrates and the general court, but both were necessary to pass a motion, thus Hooker was not allowed to leave. During this time, though, Williams looked inward himself. He decided to focus on developing his understanding and relationships with the natives, becoming fluent in their language, and learning how to hunt fish and learn how to canoe very adeptly and would actually use this mode of transportation for the rest of his life. And all of his personal development made him stronger, both physically and mentally, and he felt ready to return to his fight for religious freedom. Once the crisis with Thomas Hooker was resolved and this resolution was him moving south and forming the colony of Hartford along the Connecticut River. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a later episode. This loss uh, led the general court to find something, someone, some scapegoat to go after. They went after a man named Israel Stoughton, and he, they stripped him of office and burned all of his records, and a day of humiliation was called by the general court in search of anything that offended God. Now, this went directly against William's ideal of separating church and state that he had learned during his time in England. And he used this moment to speak out directly against the actions of the court and used the day of humiliation against them by bringing light to their public sins. Winthrop and the rest of the court agreed that Williams proved that he held them in contempt and decided to put an end to it. For this offense, Williams was due to be brought forth to the general court, but due to the threat of the crown looming over the colony at the time, the colony was a little bit in shambles and the king of England was threatening to take over and withdraw the charter, and this caused this meeting to be postponed. He had several meetings with ministers in the meantime, but never reached an agreement with them. After this, though, Williams was basically silent, and during the silence, Williams took note of the oath required by all adults and attempted to build his case. Now, the general court had a loyalty oath, basically a way to force a uniform order of church discipline 
in Boston. Now, John Cotton and John Winthrop both were afraid of the Church of England superseding their authority in Boston. Now, William Laud had proven that he would go to great lengths to silence and persecute and kill Puritans, and they did not want that to find its way to Boston, so they forced people to take an oath to the Boston church. Williams objected to this oath, though. He viewed that the oath was both forcing corrupt people to swear in God's name and also to use God's name for earthly purposes. John M. Barry, in his book, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, writes, quote, His views would develop much beyond what he stated at this time, but even now his protests went to the core of the relationship between church and state. He objected first because the state was requiring an oath of all subjects, including the most corrupt. Forcing unregenerate persons to swear before God forced them to take the Lord's name in vain. This profaned God. This created sin. This violated one of God's fundamental commandments, and since the requirement was imposed by a vote of the general court, it involved all persons in that sin. But he had a more subtle and deeper problem. He argued that, quote, and this is quoting Williams directly, an oath was part of God's worship, that Christ's prerogative was to have his office established by oath, end quote. Barry continues, swearing an oath was a serious and spiritual act. It represented striving after God, seeking God, submission to God. An oath linked God and the swearer. Yet this oath, an oath before God to perform a worldly act, instead linked the state and its subjects. Requiring men and women to swear fealty to the state, to swear this, to pledge before God and to God for an earthly purpose, equated an earthly and necessarily corrupt kingdom with God's holy kingdom. This, too, took the Lord's name in vain. It trivialized God. Worse, by equating human society, the world, and all of its corruption with God's kingdom, it reeked of human pride. This, too, was sin. This was anathema to him. End quote. Now, obviously, this did not play well with John Winthrop. And his new protest forced the hands of the court as they saw it, and he was forced to appear before them at long last. Unfortunately, this meeting itself is lost to time. But the messages resonated with those in the colony. The oath was rescinded much to the chagrin of many of the ministers, and Williams used this resonance to his advantage and began repeating old protests. His newfound voice landed him a permanent position as the teacher of Salem Church, despite the protests from the general court. Now, the general court would not take this lightly and launched an attack on Salem itself in order to get Williams to finally conform. Now, Williams was brought forth to the court to speak to his four dangerous opinions. And these opinions were that the government should not enforce the first table, meaning get between God and man, to force an oath on sinful men, that one should not pray with a sinful man, and that one not offer thanks after the sacrament. Williams would not have a full trial as the decision was made prior to his appearance. He was found guilty. And this is something that we'll see continuously throughout early and even getting into the 18th century English colonial courts, the assumption of guilt. Regardless of this, Williams did not recant. He had meetings with several people who tried and failed to convince him to, 
but he instead looked to gain more support in this effort to condemn the magistrates. Unfortunately, Williams fell very ill and was unable to speak, and the magistrates were very pleased, and John Cotton himself used this as a sign of God's disapproval. Now, without his voice, even Salem turned on him and sided with the general court. Despite losing this and the animosity between the two, the general court gave Williams many different options out of this, and they felt that they had given ample time and patience, yet he still maintained his opinions. And in October of 1635, Roger Williams was banished and forced to leave Massachusetts Bay within six weeks. Now, Williams never really understood this. He felt that it was strange for him to be punished for holding an opinion. But it wasn't necessarily just holding the opinion, it was voicing the opinion. The magistrates would later argue if he had kept quiet, he would not have actually been banished if he had just bowed down to their authority. Regardless, Williams now had to make a decision about where to go. He decided that what was best for him was true freedom. He would create his own venture since it was likely that he would be pushed out of wherever he went. During this time, he had began to gain a small following and had a small group of people that were loyal to him, starting in Plymouth and growing in Salem. But Boston actually got word of this and decided that actually it would probably be best to send him back to England instead of allowing him to leave and go wherever he wants, where he would likely die in prison at the time. However, Winthrop actually tipped him off And in the middle of a blizzard, Williams left Salem for good to start his own experiment elsewhere. Now, while Williams is in the wild during this time, another controversy starts to bloom. We talked last episode about the Pequot War in 1636. Now, in the background of that, I mentioned another name, Anne Hutchinson. So we're going to have to go back in time a little bit to tell her story. Anne Hutchinson, born Anne Marbury, was born in Elford, Lincolnshire, in England, in July of 1591. She was the daughter of a preacher, Francis Marbury, and received a very strong religious education throughout her young life. She saw her father battle constantly with the Church of England authorities and read early in her life The Book of Martyrs by John Fox. Now, this Book of Martyrs was a history of martyrs throughout British history and, I believe, European history, and it was written in the late 1500s after many centuries of brutal, brutal religious persecution, specifically once the Reformation started. Now, after reading this, Anne Marbury was poised to have qualms with the way the Church of England was run. Anne and her family moved to London for a short time for Uh, her father's job to preach at St. Martin Vintry in London, though after her father's death, she married William Hutchinson in 1612 at the age of 21 and moved back to her hometown of Alford, becoming enamored with the sermons of John Cotton. Now, we've talked about John Cotton. He was a prominent Puritan preacher and would become a key figure in Massachusetts later on, but he was very big into Calvinism and the idea of the covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of grace was an idea that the Calvinists took very seriously. It was heavily debated during the Reformation, 
And it was the argument that one could only go to heaven if they were chosen by God, not by any earthly deeds. And this was related to the sanctification. Sanctification is the idea that one leads a saint-like life. And for John Cotton and the Puritans and Calvinists in general, it was the idea that sanctification is evidence of justification, where they are chosen, therefore they act like saints, not the other way around. They believed that sanctification had no bearing on how one lived their life. It was chosen by God ahead of time. And there was the opposing view of the covenant of works, where one's deeds on earth could lead to their sanctification and their salvation. And these ideas will lead to eventually Anne Hutchinson's break with Massachusetts, but it's important to think of them now and get them out in in your head a little bit just to sow the seed a bit. Now, Anne Hutchinson was influenced by John Cotton, but also by John Wheelwright, her brother-in-law. And while in England, she also began to run small meetings and discuss the Bible on her own. And when John Cotton left for Massachusetts, the Hutchinsons felt that it was only necessary to follow them. And they boarded the Griffin in 1633, arriving in the New World in 1634. And she had a reputation along the way for prophesying, which was something that only men were allowed to do, which garnered her a poor reputation before she even arrived. And Zechariah Sims reported her upon landing. And in Boston, when they landed, John Winthrop heard of this, but did not act on it. In Boston, immediately Hutchinson picked up where she left off by holding small meetings in her home. She read the Bible with women of the colony who were barred from attending church services. These meetings began to grow in popularity over the next couple of years, and she was so popular that men began to attend her meetings, and they became so large even then that she had to hold multiple per week. In some of these meetings, even the governor, Henry Vane, who was elected in 1636, remember, would attend them. While these were seen as inconsequential at the beginning, the rise of their popularity only brought more spotlight to them, making them untenable. Now, her teachings were largely influenced by John Cotton and John Wheelwright, as I said, but she began to branch off from there a little bit. She preached the covenant of grace extremely heavily and criticized the colony's minister's view regarding sanctification and justification. Now, this takes another small explanation. John Winthrop and the ministers were forced to preach what is called the idea that sanctification leads to justification. Therefore, living a saint-like life shows that one is saved. This gets a little bit too deep into the weeds of the idea of the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. But to Anne Hutchinson, she believed that by saying a saint-like life is proof of justification, which is the idea that one will go to heaven, that that is a covenant of works. Now, this was a very small qualm, a very small issue, a very small error that Anne Hutchinson was making in regards to what John Winthrop and the rest of the ministers wanted. But it led to a very large-scale problem. And what would be called the Antimonian controversy, or the Free Grace controversy. Now, Antimonian directly translates as those against law. And in the religious context, it means that the moral law is not binding upon Christians who are under the law of grace, which means that if you are sanctified, you do not need to follow the law. 
That is what John Winthrop thought and Hutchinson and the rest of the Antimonians, which were John Cotton, John Wheelwright, and Henry Vane, among others. That is what John Winthrop thought they were teaching, that those that are sanctified do not need to follow the law. And he was trying to keep this colony together, trying to make sure that it did not fall apart within a decade of arrival. So he was not happy about this. So in October of 1636, the Boston ministers confronted John Cotton and John Wheelwright to reach an agreement, and they conceded that sanctification did prove justification. And the eventual election of Henry Vane, another antimonian, sort of settled this issue a bit. But when Wheelwright recanted his promise to keep preaching this idea, and several Hutchinson supporters refused to serve in the Pequot War, It was untenable for this situation to continue. And the ministers began to see that their grasp of control was beginning to wane, and they needed to reassert that control. Luckily for them, when John Winthrop was re-elected as governor, and Hutchinson's supporters were voted out in the next election, the winds began to shift. John Wheelwright was tried for contempt and sedition, and eventually banished, and Hutchinson was brought to trial. On November 7th, 1637, Anne Hutchinson's trial began. The magistrates that were the judges of this trial were John Winthrop, Thomas Dudley, Simon Bradstreet, and John Endicott, and eight ministers were brought to give testimony. Hugh Peter, John Elliot the Younger, Thomas Weld, Simon Bradstreet, Zechariah Sims, remember the man who, who reported Anne Hutchinson's prophesying on the ship, John Wilson, Thomas Shepard, and George Phillips. Anne Hutchinson was charged with slandering the ministers, disturbing the peace, and promoting troubling opinions. The ministers viewed Hutchinson's teachings as an accusation that the ministers taught a covenant of works. To them, this was preposterous, as they were pure-blooded Puritans and could not possibly be pushing Catholic doctrine. There is a distinction that Hutchinson makes clear, though. She states that she does not think that the ministers preached a covenant of works, but that they did not preach a covenant of grace clearly enough. See, these, the issues that they had were very small, but perhaps because she was a woman, perhaps because she challenged the power of John Winthrop, she could not stay. Now, these different accusations that were made against Anne Hutchinson were made based on meetings that were had in private. So there was not much evidence for her actually having these opinions that the ministers were preaching a covenant of works rather than a covenant of grace. Hutchinson was able to force the ministers to be put under oath before testifying, which they took very seriously. In in return, she had to bring forth her own witnesses first, and she called John Cogshall, Thomas Leverett, and John Cotton. Cogshall and Leverett did not offer much actual good, useful testimony for the court, but Cotton did, and he was questioned extremely heavily. And Cotton recalled that Hutchinson had simply compared the other ministers to Cotton and denied that she accused them of preaching a covenant of works. In her book, American Jezebel, Evil Plant quotes John Cotton here. This quote by Cotton is a bit confusing, but it's a conversation with Cotton and Hutchinson and a bunch of other ministers. So the they that they he mentions is the ministers. She is Anne Hutchinson and I, in this quote, is John Cotton, quote, that they did not hold forth a covenant of grace as I did. But wherein did we differ? They asked, that is, the ministers, why she said that 
they did not hold forth the seal of the Spirit as he doth. And he in that is John Cotton. Where is the difference there, said they? Why, said she, you preach of a seal of the Spirit upon a work, and he upon free grace without a work, or without respect to a work. He preaches the seal of the Spirit upon free grace, and you upon a work. End quote. Now, continuing on, John Cotton said, quote, This was the sum of the difference, nor did it seem to be so ill-taken as it is. And our brethren did say, also, that they would not so easily believe reports as they had done, and withal mentioned that they would speak no more of it. And I must say that I did not find her saying that they were under a covenant of works, nor that she said that they did preach a covenant of works. End quote. Now this quote is a bit convoluted and confusing, but to put it in the plainest way possible, John Cotton saw Anne Hutchinson in a meeting with the ministers claim that what they preached was not quite a covenant of grace, though it was not necessarily a covenant of works, it was close enough where it should be ridiculed. Furthermore, he, she does not believe that they could not preach the gospel correctly, it's just that they were not doing it as of right now. Now with this testimony, this case that the court brought forth began to fall apart. But this win for Hutchinson was short-lived, as she decides in this moment to make her voice, her own voice, heard. Whether this outburst was ego or a divine revelation or a tactical move, or that she realized she would be banished regardless of the outcome, she began to teach the court itself. She began by comparing herself to biblical characters that directly communicated with God, such as Abraham. In the court proceedings, Hutchinson is quoted as saying, how did Abraham know that it was God that bid him offer his son, being a breach of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder? Thomas Dudley, one of the magistrates, replied, by an immediate voice, meaning the voice of God. And Hutchinson replied, so to me, by an immediate revelation. And in the climax of her speech, she states that the magistrates can do no harm to her because she is protected by God. Now, given the status of women at the time, she had no standing as a prophet and either was the, a worker for the devil or a witch, and after a short discussion, it was clear to the ministers that Hutchinson was a danger to society and a cause for colonial trouble, thus they convicted her. And after her display, some minister took her side, but in the end, it was of little consequence. Her statements made the decision very clear for the court. John Cotton even withdrew his ardent support of his disciple. With an overwhelming vote... Hutchinson was thus banished from Massachusetts and considered, quote, not fit for our society by the court. With this, the court had reached the verdict they had set to prove from the beginning. Hutchinson was already considered guilty by the court before her trial even began, much like Roger Williams. They just needed to justify it for everybody else. Now, this was just a trial before the general court. Now, she awaited her trial before the church. In the meantime... Anne Hutchinson was now under house arrest, and despite being under house arrest, she was not done answering for her alleged crimes. She was illegally charged, but her standing in the church was now under consideration. Because of her belief, she faced excommunication from the Boston church. After four months in house arrest, she became weary and her health began to fail. Most of her family was gone and many of her supporters were banished, seeking help from Roger Williams, so she did not have nearly the backing as she did in her first trial. At her home church in Boston, Thomas Leverett, a supporter 
of Hutchinson in her trial, led the examination and read off the errors that Hutchinson had made in her home church in Boston. Some of these errors are that the soul is mortal and is resurrected, that the Holy Spirit resides in the body of a justified person, that sanctification is not evidence of justification, and that her visions were as true as scripture itself. Many historians, such as David Hall, argue that these errors were, quote, not about matters of doctrine, but about power and freedom of conscience, end quote. Hutchinson was reread each error, and a debate was held about each of them in sequence. The debate lasted for nine hours, much of it between Hutchinson and her mentor, John Cotton. Many of these discussions devolved into religious jargon and argumentation, which is difficult to grasp for anybody that is not as well read in scripture as Hutchinson and Cotton, including many that were at these hearings themselves. There were, however, several discussions that were more pointed and involved political and cultural components as well. One such moment was led by Reverend Peter Bulkley, a leader of the Cambridge Synod, which established the Orthodox doctrine for the colony. He insisted that Hutchinson preached familism. Now, familism was a heresy named after the family of love. They attempted to remove any barriers between themselves and the word of God, but to Puritans, familists were seen to believe that they were free from sin and any responsibility for sin. They were also known for practicing free love, having multiple partners, and known for their immoral behavior, but all of this is likely false. Now, Hutchinson was a devout married woman and had many children, and so she was completely turned off by this accusation. In American Jezebel, Eve LaPlante writes out this whole sequence, the accusation that she practiced free love under familism. Quote, Repelled by the suggestion that she questioned the sacred vow of marriage, Hutchinson said, quote, If any such practice or conclusion be drawn from it, then I must leave it, for I abhor that practice. End quote. And now quoting Winthrop, quote, The familists do not desire to evade that question, for they practice the thing. And they bring this very place in scripture to prove their community of women and to justify their abominable wickedness. It is a dangerous error, end quote. Leverett defended her, saying that she does believe in the resurrection of the body. But Reverend Peter asks the question, quote, Do you think the very bodies of Moses, Elijah, and Enoch were taken up into the heavens or no? Hutchinson replies, I know not that. And this instills a a ton of consternation among the ministers. Reverend Davenport states that, quote, These are opinions that cannot be borne. They shake the very foundation of our faith and tend to the overthrow of all religion. They are not slight matters, but are of great weight and consequence, end quote. And Reverend Elliot agreed, quote, We much fear her spirit, end quote. With this, the judges were finally ready to decide. With near unanimity, Anne Hutchinson was excommunicated from the Boston church. The court went forward with the judgment and assured the audience that they would sniff out any more heretics. Many in the crowd, including Edward Hutchinson, Thomas Savage, and Edward Gibbons, stood against the injustice they saw in this court. But it was a lost cause as they would be admonished by the church, and John Cotton specifically for this. For instance, Cotton told Savage, quote, you do a very evil office out of your natural, not religious affection to hinder the church in her proceeding 
and to be a means to harden your mother's heart in these dangerous opinions, and so keep her from repentance, end quote. With this, the court moved forward to admonition. John Cotton addressed the sons and outspoken allies of Hutchinson first. He admonished them for hardening the resolve of Anne Hutchinson and not challenging her in her errors. Doing so hindered her ability to repent. He then turned to the women of the congregation, admonishing them for listening to her word as one would a preacher, and ignoring the fact that, quote, she is but a woman. Remember, all preachers were male at this time. It is obvious from the trials that the ministers and magistrates alike were worried that Hutchinson would upset the balance of the colony. Cotton then turned to Hutchinson. He admonished her for each error, even accusing her of being unfaithful to her husband, and made it clear that she was not welcome and even a danger in the church. I'm going to read a bit of this admonition of Hutchinson by Cotton. It starts, actually, with some praise. And this quote is from American Jezebel by Eve LaPlante. Quote, When you came first over into this country, we heard of some opinions that you vented upon the seas in the ship. LaPlante continues about which the authorities needed to be reassured before admitting her to the church membership. This is that prophecy that she spoke of on board the Griffin. Now quoting Cotton, Since then you have been an instrument of doing some good. The Lord hath endowed you with good parts and gifts fit to instruct your children and servants, and to be helpful to your husband in the government of the family. Continuing on, you have been helpful to many to bring them off from building their good estate upon their own duties and performances, or upon any righteousness of law. Yet notwithstanding, we have a few things against you, and in some sense not a few, but such as are of great weight and of a heavy nature and dangerous consequences. Therefore, let me warn you and admonish you in the name of Jesus Christ to consider of it seriously, how the dishonor you have brought unto God by these unsound tenets of yours is far greater than all the honor you have brought to him, and the evil of your opinions doth outweigh all the good of your doings. Consider how many poor souls you have misled, that by this one error of yours in denying the resurrection of these very bodies, this is that familism accusation, you do the uttermost to raise the very foundation of a religion to the ground and to destroy our faith, end quote. Cotton continues for a while and eventually gets to his final point, quote, And so your opinions fret like a gangrene and spread like a leprosy and infect far and near and will eat out the very bowels of religion and hath so infected the churches that God knows when they will be cured. Therefore, that I may draw to an end, I do admonish you, and also charge you in the name of Christ Jesus, and in whose place I stand, that you would sadly consider the just hand of God against you, the great hurt you have done to the churches, the great dishonor you have brought to Jesus Christ, and the evil that you have done to many a poor soul. And seek unto him to give you repentance, and a heart to give you satisfaction to the churches you have offended hereby, and bewail your weakness in the sight of the Lord, that you may be pardoned. And consider the great dishonor and reproach that hereby you have brought upon this church, how you have laid us all under a suspicion of holding and maintaining errors. And take heed how you did leaven the hearts of young women with such unsound and dangerous principles, and labor to recover them out of the snares which you have drawn them to. And so the Lord carry home to your soul what I have spoken in his name. End quote. With this, Cotton had left Hutchinson totally debased and with practically no public support except for her family. 
Strangely enough, and it might have been a little bit awkward during this trial, Hutchinson was staying at John Cotton's house. And while there, John Cotton was trying to convince Hutchinson to repent, to recant her views and renounce her prophetic powers. At the next trial day, Hutchinson actually began to acknowledge her errors, including her views on the covenant of works and apologize for her treatment of the magistrates during the previous trial. The court was weary to trust her already, and Hutchinson's pride made it even more clear to them that she was too dangerous to be allowed to stay in the church. Reverend Wilson stated that, quote, I look at her as a dangerous instrument of the devil, raised up by Satan amongst us to raise up divisions and contentions and to take away hearts and affections one from another, end quote. The court viewed her as the cause of the disease and the infighting rampant in the church at this time, and not just in the church, in Boston and in politics as well. With her excommunication, Hutchinson left Boston for Pocasset, Rhode Island, a colony founded by 23 men, including several of her own family members. In early April of 1638, Hutchinson arrived and was finally reunited with her husband, who had left after her first trial. Her arrival did not end the suffering she had been facing during the whole ordeal, though. She had been pregnant through both trials, and it had taken a toll. At the age of 46, at this point, her body was not well equipped for pregnancy, and the imprisonment and banishment just made it worse. She went into labor in May, six weeks earlier than expected, and due to her age, she did not deliver her 16th child, but rather a hydatidiform mole, several clumps of tissue resembling transparent grapes. After the miscarriage, Hudsonson bled profusely and her life looked in jeopardy. John Winthrop heard of this birth and saw it as a sign that she was being punished by God. Luckily, she survived and continued to preach in Pocasset, becoming more popular than she was in Boston. It's about this time that we transition a couple years back into the past and take a look at how Rhode Island was formed, allowing Hutchinson to continue preaching after leaving Boston. Now, during this trial of Anne Hutchinson, Roger Williams found himself alone in the wilderness. Remembering back, he had just been banished and was headed out into a blizzard. Now, this winter was the worst that the new colony had seen, though Williams was fortunate that he had forged strong relationships with surrounding tribes and was accepted into a nearby Wampanoag village. There, he became close with Massasoit, the leader of the Wampanoag, and along the way to find his new colony, he was sheltered by many other friendly tribes and survived this way for months. And after the winter ended, Williams settled into an area called Narragansett Bay. He was joined by several of his supporters in the spring and formed a small community filled with temporary homes and small farms. Unfortunately for Williams, Boston continued to loom over him and sent a request to Plymouth to drive him away. He was pushed to the other side of the river, the west side of the river, by Edward Winslow in a relatively gentle manner, but this would continue for a very long time. The western side of this river was Narragansett territory. They were the main rival of the Wampanoag and much more powerful. The new area seemed perfect, but Williams wanted to ask for permission first. His strong relationships paid off yet again, as he was granted permission to settle with clear boundaries set with the Narragansett. This lands dispute with the Plymouth and Narragansett and Boston would continue for a very long time, but regardless of that, this new settlement allowed 
and Williams the chance to finally attempt to create a society that he had tried to promote in Boston. He took the principles that he had learned from his mentor, Edward Koch, in England so many years ago. Williams wanted to take this opportunity to use the newly realized practice of experimentation and observation, a revolution that we talked about made by Francis Bacon. But first, Williams had to create a stable settlement. He did so by creating a simple democratic system that held the land in common, though Williams was the still the sole true owner. This did not last long, though, as many fellow travelers took this journey to build a better life for themselves and their family and did not find the current arrangement suitable for those goals. This small conflict made Williams realize that he needed a better foundational structure for his government. For help, he actually contacted Winthrop for advice on how to write a civil compact. The advice given was lost to history, unfortunately, but there was one component that was striking of this new compact. It did not mention God. Faith was an integral part of Williams' life and career, but this exclusion was not surprising if one understands that Williams was trying to achieve something different. He wanted God to be above the government, not part of it. This was his goal in Boston, as well as Plymouth and in Salem, and here in Narragansett Bay, he made it a reality. A government that deals solely with the people. God's laws are enforced by God, man's laws are enforced by man. Now, after this compact was signed, the land was purchased by families from Williams, by those family, though he never actually made a profit from it, and the rest was donated to the town. Each landowner had a vote with no religious test nor church attendance required, a stark contrast from Boston. This early democratic system was directly influenced by Williams's view that government was given authority by the people, not by God, setting himself in direct contrast to Winthrop. This belief was likely influenced by his time with Coke, but also his time in Plymouth, which was governed based on the principles of the Mayflower Compact. He went so far as to not even build a church in this new town, Providence, Rhode Island, to ensure the religion was as individualistic as possible. During this time, as we mentioned, the Pequot War, Roger Williams acted as an ambassador for the Narragansett, proclaiming their innocence in the murder that led to this war, and convinced the Narragansett to turn down an alliance with the Pequots, preventing an all-out war between these two major powers. The end of the war, as I've mentioned, marked the end of the Pequots, but it marked also the beginning of a fight over the territory that Williams had fought already so hard for by Massachusetts and Plymouth. Massachusetts was ready to assert its power in the region, and Williams had no strong military to stand a chance. He would have to fight in the courts instead. In order to bolster his standing in the region, Williams invited many of those that were banished, including now Anne Hutchinson and her family, John Wheelwright, William Coddington, among others, many of those Antimonians, and he also negotiated with the Narragansett to acquire a Quidnick Island in Narragansett Bay for newcomers to settle, although he did not integrate this new community of exiles into his mainland community entirely. So these two disjointed towns and settlements struggled against each other, and there were many defectors and upstarts. But all of these towns had one thing in common, freedom of religion. And this small settlement of Rhode Island began to grow slowly, and Winthrop decided that now was the time to fight before they actually had a chance to grow anymore. Winthrop and the general court began rewriting the code of law in the bay in order to gain conformity among the populace. 
They created a body of liberties in 1638 that borrowed from the Magna Carta and the Petition of Right, but offered the ability for the government to take those rights away if necessary. They did not believe that liberty allowed one to do as they pleased, rather they must do what is good. This was not the same liberty that William strove for, but due to the small land disputes and political posturing, Williams had his hands full. He was faced head-on from several fronts that would force him finally to put his principles to the test. The first one being the arrival of Samuel Gorton. Samuel Gorton was born in England and arrived in Boston in 1637. He arrived just after the banishment of Anne Hutchinson during the trial of John Wheelwright. Shortly after arriving, however, Gorton found himself being pushed out of Massachusetts due to many confrontations and unorthodox religious doctrine, an early form of the Quakers. He moved to Plymouth but was similarly pushed out and ended up in Newport, where he rejected the authority of the court as they did not actually have a charter from England at the time. He found the governor of Newport, William Coddington, to be an autocrat and felt that it was necessary to remove him. Rhode Island had many more freedoms than most other colonies, and he felt that it was necessary to keep it that way. It is unclear whether the Hutchinsons were directly allied to him, as he had a little relationship with Anne Hutchinson afterwards, but this Gordon-led small-scale rebellion ended with William Hutchinson as governor. He was summarily charged, sentenced, whipped, and banished by Coddington, though he would eventually find shelter in Providence, but was not held in high regard by Williams. Here, Gorton began to gain a small following. He gained the support of William Harris, an active opponent of Roger Williams. Gorton rejected any form of authority and actively fought against requests made of him, and the town was led to near anarchy. Gorton overstayed his welcome and he knew it, and he decided to leave Providence and bought land just outside of the settlement. He bought land from the Narragansett and created the town of Shawamet. Now this land was disputed, which led to many disputes in Rhode Island, and once the United Colonies were created, that cooperation between Massachusetts and Plymouth and New Haven and Connecticut, Gorton was actually called to submit to them and rescind his own claim. Winthrop accepted this immediately and now owned the land that Gorton bought, putting immense pressure on Williams. Connecticut and Plymouth also began to put claims on, the, on land surrounding the colony, and Williams had no way of outlasting these colonies, so he had to win legally. He was forced to return to England to plead his case. To do so, he had to leave from New Amsterdam, as Winthrop would not let him depart from Boston. Along the way to London, Williams thought and wrote continuously. This writing led to the eventual publication of a work called A Key into the Language of America. In it, he described in great detail the language, culture, and political makeup of the New England Indian nations. He drew similarities between the Indian nations to that of English, and all of this was to implore the British, the English, to increase their attempts at conversion through understanding rather than might. Williams arrived in London in 1642 to find his home country embroiled in a civil war. He also found two mighty opponents to his case, Hugh Peter and Thomas Weld, two people that went to Massachusetts but came back to Britain after the war started. He connected with Henry Vane, with whom he lived and worked during his time in London. I remember Henry Vane, the antimonian governor. Vane also introduced Williams to John Milton, the famous poet and intellectual, and the writer of Paradise Lost. During this trip, Williams felt it necessary to fight for the right of consciousness, liberty of thought, and separation of church and government. 
he was going to attempt to do so during the long parliament that was attempting to intertwine the two. Unfortunately, William soon found that the status of his colony was growing ever more grim. Miantinomi, the sachem of the Narragansett, was a close ally of William's against the United Colonies. But when he was murdered, William's main ally was lost. Through shady dealings, William Arnold, a supposed ally, then broke off a piece of the colony previously owned by Miantinomi, further leaving the colony helpless. Williams knew that he had no option but to succeed in getting a charter. Anything less would put an end to his liberty experiment. He was able to finally get a meeting with the Committee on Foreign Plantations that was newly formed during the Long Parliament, but he found that Thomas Weld had already been there seeking a charter to bring Providence under Massachusetts control. This attempt failed, but it did put a roadblock in front of Williams. To make life more difficult for Williams, Parliament seemed to be moving in the direct opposite direction of Williams's principles and opted for an interwoven church and state and religious intolerance. During the civil wars, parliamentarians were extremely Protestant and wanted the Protestant religion, the Anglican church, to be ingratiated with the government itself. Luckily, Williams was able to use his friendships with Henry Vane and forged a new friendship with Robert Bailey, both of which were prominent members of Parliament. After receiving a letter by John Cotton, a letter that was not kind to Williams and likewise to those that wanted to say centralized church, Williams took full advantage of this and wrote a rebuttal describing the overreach of Massachusetts called Mr. Cotton's letter examined and answered. He could use this information and build off this current knowledge in Parliament and give context around why Rhode Island was vital. He described the intolerance of any other thoughts but those preached by Boston and that the church and state were intertwined entirely, and he concluded that this would lead to one thing, a corrupt church. Williams was finally fully articulating that which he had thought for years, and now he had the advantage. His plight mirrored that which Parliament was facing now with their fight with the Presbyterians in Scotland, and he began garnering support. Williams argued that Rhode Island should not only have a charter, but liberty as well. He convinced the committee that Rhode Island could then be a test of his ideals. With the help of Henry Vane, Williams was granted a charter. The charter granted Rhode Island full control over their government and did not enforce any religion on them. Williams had won entirely. While the charter granted autonomy, it did not protect the colony entirely, from outside forces, though. But before he could get back to help defend Rhode Island, he had some more writing to do. In London, he wrote two manuscripts, the pamphlet Queries of the Highest Consideration and a book called The Bloody Tenant of Persecution for Cause of Conscience discussed in a conference between truth and peace. The former posed questions that he thought needed answering from Parliament, including whether the Westminster Assembly should exist and argued that the government had no place in the church. The Westminster Assembly was a group of divines, theologians, and members of English Parliament that were appointed to restructure the Church of England. The latter work, The Bloody Tenant, was Williams's magnum opus. It argued for a complete separation of church and state and full religious freedom. Williams even began advocating for a democracy, something that was not well liked by many of those in power. He challenged the idea of the divine right to rule that even the New England magistrates employed, and he even laid out what would later become the basis for the American Revolution. In his book, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, John M. Barry lays out some of these arguments. 
Quote, Williams asserted that sovereignty remained holy in the people and called that sovereignty, quote, quoting Williams, distinct from the government set up, and if so, that a people may erect and establish what form of government seems to them most meet for their civil condition. It is evident that such governments as are by them erected and established have no more power, nor for longer time, than the civil power or people consenting and agreeing shall betrust them with. Williams continues, All true civil magistrates have not the least inch of civil power, but what is measured out to them from the free consent of the whole, even as a committee of parliament cannot further act than the power of the house shall arm and enable them. All lawful magistrates in the world, both before the coming of Christ and since, are but derivatives and agents. Hence they have and can have no more power than fundamentally lives in the bodies or fountains themselves, which power, might, or authority is not religious, Christian, etc., but natural, humane, and civil. End quote. Complete separation of church and state was nowhere near the mainstream opinion at the time. There had been very few who had argued for true religious tolerance, the most prominent being Hugo Grotius, which we will talk about in next episode in a little bit more detail. But no one went as far as Williams. The Bloody Tenant was also written during a period of extreme religious intolerance. The Thirty Years' War was raging on the continent, and he had finally put all of this experience, studying, and his ideals into one work. After publishing his book, Williams had to write several rebuttals to complaints, one of which was written by John Cotton. By this point, though, Williams had left his mark and had already returned to America. His work was spread far and wide in England. It was criticized, built upon, and used in practice over the next five years. But Williams was long gone. When he returned, he headed straight for Boston. Williams brought his charter and a letter of reconciliation written and signed by high figures in England. The governor, John Endicott, and deputy governor Winthrop did not accept the demands and banished Williams immediately. He was extremely disappointed by this, but left regardless and made his way back to Providence, back home. Unfortunately, the comforts of home were not all he had hoped for. He was still surrounded by the United Colonies on the outside and had political enemies like William Coddington on the inside. Coddington actively fought against the formation of a government, though he eventually lost his battle. And John Winthrop also changed his tune and became distant and cold. Through it all, though, Williams was determined to prove his ideas worked. Newcomers to Rhode Island were given voting rights and 100 acres for a fee of 30 shillings upon arrival. And in 1646, two years after returning, Williams was victorious again when the Earl of Warwick stated that Shawamet was entirely outside the bounds of Massachusetts. Shawamet, again, is that colony started by Gordon and was actually inside of the domain of Rhode Island. And with that, the town was renamed Warwick. Williams then set out to create a new government that further codified this victory. The government formed was like no other at the time. It included full protection of one's rights, full freedom of religion, divorce law, democratically elected magistrates, and use common law rather than God for authority. This new government offered stability unforeseen in Rhode Island. Williams was ready to use this moment of victory to finally retire and return to the solitude that he so desired. William Coddington, though, made that impossible. Coddington was granted a charter on false pretenses and used it to attempt to join the colonies, the United Colonies. This led to chaos in Newport and Portsmouth, and Williams was forced to go back to England to fight this battle. When he arrived in England, he found a situation much worse than the last time. Oliver Cromwell was well on his way to becoming a dictator. King Charles I had been executed, 
and the Civil War was over, though there was still great uncertainty in the country. Despite this, Williams was able to elicit the help of Henry Vane again to revoke the Charter of Coddington, but the land dispute with Plymouth in Connecticut was still not resolved. Williams stayed with Vane in England and became close friends with many revolutionaries such as Hugh Peter and even Cromwell himself, though this did not lead to much success. He stayed long enough to see Cromwell become Lord Protector, making it even more difficult to press the issue. And at this point, he had had enough. Williams was ready to go home. And just as he was leaving, it seemed as though God granted his wishes for him. He was granted everything he could have hoped for. A reaffirmation of the Rhode Island Charter, a warning against the United Colonies to keep the peace, and a new policy that the liberty of conscience should be maintained in all the American plantations. But again, Williams was greeted with chaos at home. He never seemed to escape it. The colony had splintered over the decision to allow for the hire of privateers against the Dutch in New Amsterdam. Williams sent out a plea to stop the infighting and enjoy the peace and prosperity and liberty that had finally been granted to them for once. Luckily, that was successful, and the original charter was used to reunite the colony. Against his wishes, Williams was then named governor, though every action that he tried to make was pushed against, and further pushed against the limits of his vision. Williams was forced to slowly and meticulously explain every use of authority. But through this, stability reemerged, and even sworn enemies, such as Coddington himself, were willing to cooperate with the new government. New challenges arose, though, as the Quakers began to gain prominence in the region and had been pushed out of the United Colonies wholesale. But they found refuge in Rhode Island and continued to leak through the cracks. Now, Williams was no fan of Quakers, but he let them stay to prove his vision of religious freedom. Beyond just religious sanctuary, this colony became a sanctuary for criminals and Indians who were able to skate by the laws of Massachusetts. And when an infamous traitor, Richard Chasmore, was arrested, there was a fight over jurisdiction. Because Chasmore was arrested in Pawtuxet, a land without clear jurisdiction at this time, both Rhode Island and Massachusetts fought over who should charge him. Williams was able to gain custody of Chasmore and actually eventually dropped all charges and charged anybody who attempted to charge him with treason, but eventually these were dropped as well. By this point, though, Williams' standing among the populace was beginning to diminish, and he was soon after voted completely out of the government and forced to hand the charter over to the government itself. The most important test of all had now begun. Could the colony survive on the basis of ideas alone and without Williams at the helm? The new government succeeded beyond Williams' own imagination. They defied the United Colonies over their request to remove the Quakers twice, even after an offer to join the Alliance. They held their principles higher than any benefit that might have brought. This is the dream that Williams had dreamt so many years ago. At the end of the Civil War in 1660 with the restoration of the crown and the coronation of King Charles II, Rhode Island submitted to the king and attempted yet again to gain a new charter. They were opposed by John Winthrop Jr., but were successful, though this did not stop the never-ending land disputes with Connecticut. And these disputes would last for another century. And at the end of his life, Williams spent the rest of his life corresponding with Winthrop, preaching to the Narragansett, working alongside the government, writing further about rights and responsibilities of individuals, and he was able to make peace with the Indians during King Philip's War. But the burning of Providence left Williams in poverty and he died in poverty 
in 1683. Now, during all of this time, the Hutchinsons played a pivotal role in part of the politics. Anne Hutchinson was friends of William Coddington, the main rival of of William's, and the Hutchinsons gained prominence in the government of Rhode Island. But when William Hutchinson died in 1641, Anne Hutchinson decided to leave Massachusetts Bay for good. She left for a place that may have been even more tolerant than Rhode Island itself. She and seven of her children left Rhode Island, left Massachusetts Bay for a colony that I have mentioned several times, but never in detail. New Netherland. you 